Acts chapter 15 is where we are today, uh, coming back to this book that uh, we've been making our way through, but took a little bit of a, of a break from. Uh, hopefully, as we jump back in, we can pick right back up where we left off and your memory will be refreshed. I know for me, even uh, as I was getting started on, on preparation, I had to sort of rack my brain a month ago, was a long time ago, had to try and remember, okay, where are we? What are we doing? What are we talking about? Uh, And we are in Acts chapter 15, in the middle of the chapter, starting in verse 22, and we're going to read from verse 22 down through verse 35. If you would, stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. Acts 15, 22 through 35. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time They were sent off in peace by brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our loving God and most holy Father, we thank you today for the pleasure and the joy and the privilege that it is to come and be instructed by your word. I pray, Lord, that you would give us insight by the Holy Spirit as to the meaning of these words, to understand these texts rightly in their proper context and in their proper order and learn from them as you have designed and intended for us to do so. I pray that we today as a church would be blessed, that we would be strengthened, that we would be encouraged in all that you would have us to see and understand today. And Lord, that uh, what would take place through the preaching of the word today is more than what mere words can do, but that the Holy Spirit would work, that that he would go forth and would instruct us, teach us, mold us into the image of Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. There's uh, an important rule in proper interpretation, and that means interpretation when it comes to just about anything, whether it be the Bible, whether it be a 
historical book, whether it be a speech, whatever the case might be, being able to properly interpret something requires one necessary rule among many, but certainly there is one that I would say takes precedent over all other rules of interpretation. Does anyone know what that rule is? Context is key, or some might say context is king. That perhaps the most important thing in proper interpretation is understanding the context. Apart from that, you will get all sorts of messed up. And this is in, in every area of communication and understanding. I was reminded of this just this week as I was communicating with a, a fellow real estate agent on the other side of a, of a transaction. We were communicating about a house that my, uh, my clients were purchasing. We were talking about furniture in the house and uh, we were texting back and forth. And uh, in the middle of this conversation concerning furniture in this house, the agent on the other side sends me a text and says, by the way, I think Dixie pooped on the floor. And I was a little taken aback. Who's Dixie? Why on earth did Dixie poop on the floor in this house that my clients are about to purchase? And can we maybe do something about this? This seems like an issue, seems like a problem. And so I sent him back a, a text message trying to get some clarification. And he, he quickly responded with an apology. But that message was not meant for me, as you can probably assume. That message was meant for someone else. He was driving and talking while uh, talking to his phone, and it turns it into text, you know, talk to text kind of thing. Uh, and then, just to offer a little more clarification, he went on to tell me, by the way, Dixie is my dog, uh, just so I didn't confuse Dixie with anyone else, like his wife or his children, uh, who was pooping on the floor. We, and even in this sort of funny transaction, this funny moment that I had with this, this man as he texted me the wrong thing, and and the context that I was putting this text message in initially was very different than the context in which it belonged. A completely different conversation. He was talking about a totally different location, uh, a totally different house, and the message was meant for a totally different person than for me. The context got all screwed up, and, and with that, the whole conversation got all screwed up, just for a moment. It's important, it's not only important, it's necessary to understand the proper context for all things, but especially when it comes to the scriptures. We can get all sorts of messed up and twisted and sideways when we come to the scriptures, when we come to the word of God, and we seek to understand them in an improper context. When we misunderstand the context in which they are written, it can lead us to all sorts of issues, all sorts of problems as we seek to read and understand God's word. In the wonderful letter that Paul writes to the, to the Corinthian church, uh, the first letter to the Corinthians, he, he deals primarily with two major threats. And I would argue that these two major threats really are dealt with throughout the teaching of the New Testament. Not even just by Paul, but even by Peter and John and others. There are two major threats that almost all the issues that are dealt with by the, the writers of the New Testament could fall under these two categories, I believe. The first threat, which, again, we see Paul writing in 1 Corinthians, deals primarily with threats to the gospel. That is, Paul in 1 Corinthians and New Testament writers, in, in, by and large, write to deal with one of two issues, one being threats to the gospel. False teaching, false teachers who, who rise up in the church and deceive and distort the gospel. 
and thereby even deceive people into believing a false gospel and being doomed. But also, what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, and, and we see other New Testament writers as well writing about, is not just threats to the gospel, but also threats to the unity of the church. Both of these two things, by and large, I would say we could almost categorize all of the instruction in the New Testament, especially the very specific instructions to specific churches, basically fall under these two categories. Both are important, both are necessary, and both must be taught and understood rightly. And in fact, in this letter that we have here today, as the apostles and the elders and the church in Jerusalem are, are meeting together, this council has been formed, and they, they write this letter that we now have for us being delivered by these men to the church in Antioch and the surrounding regions, we actually see both of these two issues are being dealt with in our text today. In the letter that they write and how the Jerusalem council handles the issues, we see both of these things being dealt with, both a threat to the gospel, but also a threat to the unity of the church. Now, if you remember, even though it's been a long time ago, if you remember the last time we preached in Acts, the, the section right before this in Acts chapter 15, we dealt with what the major threat was that sparked the Jerusalem council, that got things sort of started to, to where we are now in the chapter. And you'll recall it all went back to a controversy that had arisen, which we see in Acts 15 verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This was the controversy, what is oftentimes called the Judaizer heresy, that we see that sparked this council, that, that motivated as, as Paul and, and Barnabas met with the, the people there and certainly had no small disagreement with these false teachers that had come from Judea and they debated with them and had this issue and they came to the conclusion, here's what we'll do. We will call a council. We will go to Jerusalem, meet there, meet with the other apostles, with the elders, with the church there, this more established, more mature church and we'll have this council and decide this issue. And if you recall, after hearing from, from Peter and and from James, the decision is made that, first of all, the Judaizers were dead wrong. And that they were distorting the gospel. And they were laying an undue burden upon these Gentile converts, saying that they needed to be circumcised to be saved. And that was flat out condemned by the Jerusalem council. And so they decide, let us write to them and send them a letter clarifying this issue and giving them proper instruction. So that's what we see last week, that there's this issue that's risen up in Antioch and kind of the surrounding areas, the churches there who were much newer churches, who were much uh, less mature churches. We see this issue, this heresy springing up in the church, this legalism that says you must be circumcised in order to be saved. Salvation had become something that was not just by grace, grace alone, by faith alone in Christ alone, but works had now been added into salvation. The law had now become a part of what's necessary for salvation. And as we know, the law plays no role in salvation except to show us our sin, except to show us our need of salvation, except to show us our guilt before God. But salvation is, as we talked about a few weeks ago, it is by way of a law-free gospel. 
We are saved by grace alone. But then we see the continuation of the story. Not just do we see the council meeting, but then what they do afterwards. We see the, the outcome of this meeting, of this early church council that's called here in our passage today in verses 23 to 35. So we're going to start by looking at verses 22 through 23, the first part of 23, where we see sort of the, uh, the, the next step that they do, as it says in verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. We see the Jerusalem council here exercising a great amount of wisdom. Not just the Jerusalem council and the Jerusalem church, but, but even the church in Antioch. And Paul and Barnabas, we see wisdom being exercised in this story. And I think something that, that is insightful for us, that when this issue springs up, this young church, and, and even a young church that has Paul and Barnabas there, they find it to be necessary. They find it to be helpful and important, not just to, to cast these men out of the church by the authority of Paul. It seems like they could have, right? Paul was, after all, an apostle called by God. It seems like Paul could have just waved his finger and said, get out of here and been done with it. But they found it to be important to not do it that way. And I think there's wisdom in this. They sought to gather not just the apostles, but also elders from this more mature church. Not just the elders, but it even says that they gathered the whole church in order to discuss, in order to talk about this issue. Relying not just on the, the authority of one or the, the wisdom of one, but the wisdom and the authority of the people of God, the gathered church, the authority located there. I think there's a lot of wisdom in this. Not only is there sort of a lot of wisdom on display here, but also, and as a Baptist, I'm happy to say, I think this is a, a nice picture of congregationalism as well. As a church and, and as a Baptist church, you might not know this, but I'm going to inform you now, we operate under a sort, of, uh, a sort of church structure, sort of polity or ecclesiology. That's just a fancy way of saying the, the study, the understanding of the church. That's what ecclesiology means. We operate out of ecclesiology that we call congregationalism, meaning that myself, Aaron, Robert, as the elders of the church, we do not just make every decision for the church that needs to be made. When we come together for our church meetings, for our business meetings, our members' meetings, we do that because, and we make decisions, especially major decisions, in that way because we understand that there is an authority that's given to the gathered church that supersedes even the authority of a single elder, of a single pastor but that the authority of the church is what stands. We see this in other areas too, such as church discipline. If you think about church discipline, it is the congregation as a whole that must come together for the purpose of ultimately, if necessary, dismissing a person from membership, of excommunicating a person. It is not just something that's done on the, the order of an elder or a pastor or even an apostle, but one that is done by the church. God has given especially an authority to the gathered local church that supersedes the authority granted to any one person in the church. So we see a beautiful picture of congregationalism on display here too as, as the church is gathered in order to deal with the issues before them. 
And as the church is gathered, the apostles, the elders, and the whole congregation, they see this threat to the gospel and to the church, and they take action. And I think this is also a beautiful picture of, of what the church is intended to do. And as Christians, what we're intended to do. One thing that, that I've noticed that is true of me, and I think is, is true in Christian circles, is that oftentimes we can be very slow to action, can't we? I find it very easy to talk about issues in the church. I find it very easy to, to even think about and talk about issues with other believers, concerns that I might have with them, con- concerns that I might have for the church, the health of the church, the unity of the church, whatever the case might be. But oftentimes, isn't that sort of where it stops? It stops at me talking about concerns, talking about issues, but rarely does it move from that to grace-filled action on issues. I think this is true at a personal level. I think it's true at a church level. And I think it's something that we could take a hint from the Jerusalem Council here of the gathered church to say, I think when we see an issue, especially a gospel issue, that we be eager to act and that we find it necessary to act. We see as the the text goes on that their, their action is even beyond what it needed to be. For not only do they send them with this, with this letter, but they send along with this letter, not just Paul and Barnabas, who are already sort of at the heart of the, the issue and the debate in Antioch, they send two other leading men from the church in Jerusalem to give account for, to, to basically give the, the stamp of approval, to act as witnesses to the truthfulness of this letter. That it had not just been, been Paul and Barnabas making it up, coming back with some letter, but they went the extra mile to not just to not just meet together and not just decide the issue, not just write it down in a letter, but even send it with leading men from the church in order to confirm the letter as well. And in this letter, as we see in verses 23 through 28, we see the council makes clear their condemnation of the teaching of the Judaizers and distancing themselves from those individuals. As they say, we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although, they say, we gave them no instruction. This is not from us. Those people are not from us. They are in the wrong. They are the ones troubling you. Do not let them trouble you. And so, they saw it necessary to write to them and to condemn these men. They made it known clearly that these men were false teachers proclaiming a gospel that was contrary to the gospel of salvation by grace alone. In other words, they were dealing primarily and initially, and and certainly it's what motivated them to act, with a threat to the gospel. The Judaizer heresy was not just a disagreement among like-minded individuals. It was not just a, a secondary issue, but they saw it as a primary issue, as a threat to the gospel. And indeed, we see an even stronger indictment of these kind of teachers when we consider what Paul had already said concerning them in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. If you've forgotten, here's what Paul says about these same kind of false teachers. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. He goes on in verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. Let him be damned. Let him be cut off. 
These are strong words that the Apostle Paul uses and writes to indict this very same heresy that threatened the Galatian church. He writes to them, the council writes to them, condemning this heresy, condemning this threat to the gospel in a serious and significant way and in serious terms. And I find it interesting, just a, a quick note, in verse 28, we see something interesting. As they're writing in the middle of this letter, they say, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. You notice that in verse 22, we read, it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church. And then in their letter, the authors of this letter, the the apostles and the elders in the church see fit not to just say that we saw fit, it seemed good to us, but they seem to be implying, and I think correctly so, that as the church was gathering together and dealing with this issue, the Holy Spirit was working. That they were indeed acting according to the will of God and directed by the Holy Spirit. In other words, this is how the Lord has intended for the church to work and intended to exercise the power of the Holy Spirit in the church. That when the church came to these decisions, they were able to correctly say not just that we have found it to be necessary or it seemed good to us, but to say that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. As we came to these conclusions, as we considered these things, the Holy Spirit was moving, was acting, and therefore is at work in this letter. For indeed, that is how the Holy Spirit often works in the lives of believers. He does so through the church. Which, as if we needed any more example, is just one more example of why we need the congregation, why we need our brothers and sisters in Christ, why but lone wolf Christian is, is not even really a real thing. But if it is, it is certainly a very unhealthy condition and one that is not doing you any good. And then we get to verse 29. And we're going to be in this verse for a little bit because I find this verse to be interesting. Uh, and somewhat it could be, as, as we read it, confusing to us. Let's read it real quick. Real quick. Verse 29 So he says, I'll I'll read verse 28 again. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves free from these things, you will do well. Farewell. As we read this, you remember what I said at the beginning, the importance of context. It comes into play again here. For as we read this, we might be prone to think, as as my first reading of this was as well, is this a contradiction? They had just said, the council had just said, that they wanted to lay no extra burden on these believers. It seems like a contradiction with what the council had said earlier. So in Peter, in verses 8 through 11, what does Peter say? He says, talking about what the Lord had done in the lives of the Gentiles, he says, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. 
Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? You see, we read what what Peter says here and we think, he's saying don't put an extra yoke. Don't include the law in this message of salvation. James says something similar in verse 19. He says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And we read that as the council is deliberating, as they're, as they're thinking through these issues, as they're debating these things, and we see it seems like they wanted to say there is no law added to the gospel. And then we come to verse 29, and it seems like they're saying, except these laws, Right? It can seem that way, as though there's a contradiction saying, we don't want to lay any burdens on you. Here's a burden. Which is why it's important that we understand all of these things in their proper context. Was there a contradiction here? The answer is no. There is no contradiction between what they had set out to do and write against that is a a gospel tainted by the law. There's no distinction between that, or excuse me, no contradiction between that and between what they are now saying and encouraging them and commanding them to do. And there are three things that I help, think will help us to understand this letter properly. And these three sort of things I found to be helpful, they were uh, um, laid down by Dr. Vickers, a, a seminary professor out at Southern Seminary. He says uh, that these three things are helpful in helping us understand this verse properly. He says, first of all, that this letter and these commands that were in it are location and context specific. Remember, context is key. That this was not a a universal letter. These were not universal commands in their scope, at least not all of them. Now, we're going to take sexual immorality aside, recognizing that all throughout the New and Old Testament, sexual immorality is condemned, right? That is not context specific. Sexual immorality is condemned across the board, all around, right? So that we can go ahead and say, okay, that's always. But... These other issues and the reason why sexual immorality is so closely tied with it were written to these believers in a specific context. First of all, they were written to Gentile believers. They even addressed them as Gentiles in their letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. They were writing specifically to these Gentile believers, these who were coming out of these paganistic, idolatrous customs and cultures which brings us to point number two of the sort of helpful ways of understanding this verse that this letter was dealing with behaviors that were intrinsically tied to pagan worship that was common among that culture for all of these things indeed are related to pagan and idolatrous worship abstaining from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and what has been strangled. Again, that talking about these animals that have been sacrificed in a ritualistic, pagan, idolatrous worship. And additionally, he adds sexual immorality. Though we know that that is a universal command all throughout the New Testament, for these Gentiles, it may very well have been that they didn't have the same understanding. Sexual immorality was so rampant in this time and in this area that for them it didn't even seem like an issue. It was basically a part of the culture. I think if we're being honest, we would say it's not that much different today. That sexual immorality, I think for, for a time as, as churches, we sort of, uh, here in the United States, 
had sort of the aid of, of culture for a long time to help sort of protect against or, or, or kind of had our backs, if you will, on the issues of sexual immorality. But church family, if you don't need me to tell you, I, I should hope you don't. That's not the case any longer. That issues of sexual immorality are no longer assumed to the point that something the Bible is clear on, that, that sex is, re- is reserved for the relationship of a husband and a wife in marriage, one woman and one wife, and only in marriage. While many of us in here might say, uh, yeah, duh, would the culture say that? Would Christians that you know in your workplaces, people who, who claim Christ, who fill pews every Sunday, would they know that? I would argue, probably not. And so, much like the, the Gentiles here in Antioch, perhaps we even need to be reminded of the fact that the Bible has specific and clear teachings on these and not to be tainted by the culture in this way. And so he was dealing with behaviors that were intrinsically tied to pagan worship and that were common among that culture. And then thirdly and finally, we need to understand that in no way was the Jerusalem council adding new requirements for salvation. They were not saying, as they conclude this letter, they do not conclude with, if you do these things, you will be saved. They say, if you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. It will be good for you and for the church to do these things. In other words, as the Jerusalem council is writing, they have not just dealt with the issue of salvation, the the gospel issue, the threat to the gospel. But they have now moved on to deal with a threat to the unity of the church. They've, They've clearly... Put away the idea that that justification, that salvation, is in any way connected to our obedience to the law. That's off the table. That's, no. But now they're writing to these same Gentile believers after encouraging them that, hey, you don't need to be circumcised to be saved. They have said, but here are some things that we want to instruct you in doing. Here are some commands that we want to give you, and we want to give you these for the sake of unity. That was the issue at stake here. Because for many of the, of the other believers here, especially the Jewish believers in this area, it was a deep issue for them, this idea of food that was sacrificed to idols and, and these sort of participations and things that were considered to be paganistic and idolatrous, that for them it was a serious stumbling block. It was a serious issue for them. And so, as the council is writing, and for the sake of unity... They tell them to abstain from these things. And they do so for the sake of their Jewish brothers. You see, if I were a Gentile in Antioch in that day, I know my heart. I know what I would want to do. I would want to celebrate, and not only celebrate, but rub my freedom, my Christian liberty, in the face of those Jewish believers. Because in our sinfulness, that's what we like to tend to do, right? We say, hey, look here, Paul says I'm free. I'm not bound by any law. I can go eat the the food that's been offered to idols all I want. After all, those idols aren't anything. They're fake. They're false. My conscience is clear, they could say. Now, there have been some who have suggested, and I think wrongly wrongly so, that Paul in some way disagreed with the council's decision, disagreed with the the letter that the council had written. And they say this because of things that he would later 
say concerning Christian freedom and concerning idols. But I simply cannot see how this is the case. That Paul is in any way disagreeing with the Jerusalem council. Yes, he did have things to say concerning idols and food offered to idols. He did write concerning the believer's freedom in these matters. He also wrote, like the Jerusalem council though, about the obligation that Christians have to abstain from these things for the sake of our brothers. And we see some of these things in passages like Romans 18. In Romans 18, 1 through 4, this is one of the passages where Paul deals with these issues. And he writes concerning these things. He says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. We might read this, right? What Paul is saying here. Hey, the one who eats, don't worry about him. Don't pass judgment on him. He is free to do so. We might read this and, and think that Paul disagreed with the Jerusalem council. But, but look what he goes on to say in that very same chapter. In verse 13 of Romans chapter 14, he says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil for the sake of for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual building up, he says. Let us pursue these things, peace with one another, building up for one another. In other words, let us be concerned for the unity of the church. And then he says, I think in very serious terms in verse 20, do not. For the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Paul is saying, yes, you are free to eat those things because they are nothing. They don't really mean anything. Nothing is in and of itself unclean. But for the sake of your brother, it is better not to eat. Paul says basically the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4-9. through 9. He says, therefore... As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For all, although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things exist through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Again, we might think here, Paul is saying it really doesn't matter that food offered to idols is not really that big of a deal, that it is not making us guilty, it is not making us unclean. But again, he goes on to say, in the very next verse, verse 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols 
eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not condemn us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Paul is encouraging them, don't let your Christian liberty, don't let the rights that you have, the freedom that you have to, to eat these things, to do these things, for indeed they, they are just things. But do not let your right and your freedom be used in such a way that it becomes a stumbling block and an offense and an issue to your brother. For in doing so, you are undoing the work of God and building his church together and growing us together and uniting us together in community and fellowship with one another. What is more important, that fellowship, that community, or your liberties? We among the the Reformed tradition, of which I am proudly a member, I think have at times been guilty of this very thing. Of so relishing and, and enjoying our Christian liberties to the point that we could become proud, arrogant, that we could indeed rub it in the faces of our brothers and sisters in Christ who might disagree with us on certain issues. Whether that issue be drinking, whether that issue be smoking, whatever the case might be. I think we have to be careful of our pride, of our arrogance, to say as much as we are free in Christ to do these things, and you will never hear me condemn these things from the pulpit, but what you will hear me condemn is an attitude, is a heart that says, I care more about these things than the conscience of my brother. I care more about these things than the unity among believers. That is when it becomes a sin. And that is what the authors of this letter are now writing to encourage them in. Saying, you are free in Christ Jesus. And still, for the sake of unity, abide by these commands. Do not become a stumbling block to your brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Paul himself presents the supreme example as he goes on to write for us in 1 Corinthians about his rights. We know what Paul does with his rights. He surrenders them. He is willing to become all things for all people, he says. He says, I became, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law that I might win win those under the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. In other words, Paul says, as much as we are free in Christ, I would surrender all of it for the sake of winning people to Christ. For the sake of maintaining unity in the church. And we ought to have the same mind among one another. This letter that they are writing, and specifically this portion where they lay down these commands, they lay down these Uh, these instructions to the church are not all that different from something that that I might do or pastors might do in like marital counseling. In marital counseling, uh, there can be all kinds of issues that really are not sinful in and of themselves. I'll give you an example. Say for a husband and wife. This is not an example of me and my wife. Don't get any ideas. But if a husband and wife are having issues saying, for example, The husband loves smoking his tobacco pipe. And he particularly likes smoking it in the house. 
and it drives his wife up the wall. She can't stand the smell. She can't stand the way it stains the walls. She can't stand, stand the way it clogs up her sinuses, whatever the case might be. And if they're having marital strife, issues over something like this, if it's causing issues in their marriage, disunity in their marriage, what is my counsel going to be to that man? Give up the cigars, the, the pipe, whatever it is, or smoke it outside, right? While it is no law that smoking can't be done in your house, right? We all agree. If it's your house, you can smoke in that house, at least for now. There's been no law passed that says you can. You can smoke in your house. But if it becomes an issue to where there's marital strife between a husband and wife over an issue like smoking or over an issue like where the laundry should go before it goes to the washing machine or whatever the case might be, wise counsel and indeed good counsel would be to say, let go of that thing. You have the liberty to smoke your pipe in your house, yes, but it has now become a sin because you are prioritizing that liberty over the unity, over your marriage and the fellowship and the communion you have with your spouse. And we can all agree that's good counsel, right? We would counsel the same way. If you smoking your pipe is causing this much issues, then stop smoking the pipe. Give it up. The church here is being instructed in this similar way. Saying, yeah, guess what? Food offered to idols, in and of itself, it really is not unclean. And in fact, Paul writes in, in 1 Corinthians, if you go and eat with someone and they put food before you, you don't need to worry about asking where it came from. You don't need to worry about making sure that it, doesn't, that it hasn't been offered to idols or that it hasn't been strangled or whatever. He says, just eat the food so long as it doesn't condemn another's conscience for the sake of your brother give up the right of eating that food even though you and i both know that food is not in and of itself unclean for the sake of the conscience of your brother so as not to put a stumbling block in front of him forgo your rights forgo your liberties all of this for the sake of your brother for the sake of unity among the church we see the response of the church in verses 30 through 35, as they receive this message that the Jerusalem council has given them. They, we see this in verse 30 and following. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. That in and of itself ought to be at least some proof that this this letter did not add undue burden to the church. They received this letter, including the commands, and they rejoiced, and they were encouraged by it, and they were happy to abide by these commands, not for the sake of their salvation, but for the sake of their brothers and sisters in Christ, for the sake of the family of God. You see, they cared about their brothers and sisters. They cared about maintaining unity with them and so they were happy to receive this letter they were happy to receive this counsel including the commands that were in it we go on to read that judas and silas who were themselves prophets encouraged and strengthened the brothers brothers with many words and after they had spent some time they were sent off in peace by the brothers who had sent them but paul and barnabas remained in antioch teaching and preaching the word of the lord with many others also 
Here we see again, I think something that's always worth noting as we're considering the missionary work being done here is this new church. This is a young church. It's, it's been formed recently, what we would almost consider like a, a mission field kind of church. And as is sometimes unfortunately the case on the mission field, doctrine and theology are foregone, but not so here. Right instruction, right doctrine, right theology helps to form and shape and center the church properly. That the word of God was central, whether it was proclaimed by a prophet or whether it was preached by the apostle Paul and Barnabas, the word of God remained central. So what does this mean for us? Obviously, in our day and time, in our culture, there's not really a whole lot of animals being sacrificed to idols. There's not a whole lot of, uh, of marketplaces selling um, strangled, idol sacrificed cows and sheep and goat and whatnot. Does that mean that ah, this doesn't really mean anything for us? Food offered to idols is no longer an issue, so we can just sort of do away with this whole letter. I think you know the answer is no. The questions we ought to ask as we read these passages is, how committed are you to unity? How do you use your Christian liberty? How, how humble are you to say, whatever it is that I am free to do, if it's going to become an issue for my brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm going to let it go. I'm going to put others above myself. I'm not going to flaunt my freedoms. I'm not going to abuse them. I'm not going to... to Allow them to become a stumbling block. But say in all things, for the sake of my brothers and sisters in Christ, for the sake of unity, for the sake of not undoing the work that the Lord has done, I will give up almost anything for them. I'm not gonna compromise on the gospel. Someone says, if you're gonna be saved, you gotta be circumcised. If you're gonna be saved, you gotta be baptized. You gotta sprinkle your baby. You gotta be dunked in order to have the sins cleaned. If you're not baptized, you're not saved to give it a more contemporary issue, we would condemn that outright, correctly? Yes, we would condemn that and say, no, that is an affront to the gospel. But for the sake of unity, if someone says, hey, you shouldn't smoke that pipe. Hey, you shouldn't drink that alcohol. What is better for us to do? Say, forget you, I'm free in Christ. Glug, glug, glug. I would argue that's probably a motivation out of pride, is it not? We can have a conversation with them, but have the conversation while you put those things to the side, while you in humility count others as more significant than yourself. There's much more that could be said about this issue. There's a great sermon by R.C. Sproul called The Tyranny of the Weaker Brother, where uh, if you are perhaps feeling some tension right now, that, that might relieve some of that tension. But I think for us today, we're going to err on the side of humility and say that the concerns here, which threaten the unity of the church, are things concerning pride. Let us do away with things that are going to cause other people to stumble. Let us be willing to give up our rights. Let us be willing to give up of, of ourselves for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe that means giving up of a certain vice or in and of itself irrelevant thing. Or maybe that means giving up of our free time that we love so much. Some of our television time, some of our video game time, some of our disc golf time. I know that's a big issue for everyone in here. As Christians, 
What ought we be willing to sacrifice for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ? Seems to me that the Jerusalem Council would have us to understand we ought to be willing to sacrifice quite a bit for the sake of gospel unity. Though our standing before God depends only on his grace, the unity of the church requires us to be willing to sacrifice, to give up even our rights for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And like the Gentile believers in the region of Antioch, we should be happy to do so. Let's pray.